Yeah, so if you don't have a Bible, maybe now's a good time to grab one. Um, so. Okay, so there are, there are three main topics that I want to make sure to hit tonight because they're so central, probably for everyone in this room. Um, and if they're, if they're not, if they weren't before, I hope they are after tonight. And they are, number one, the stoning of animals. Okay, very important topic. Number two, um, the washing of entrails of uh, intestines of animals. And uh, sacrificial slaughter. So I, I, does that resonate with anyone here? Yeah, there. Okay, good. Um, so, so, so those th- we're going to hit on, on those three topics tonight. But what I want to do is talk about the dynamics of divine encounter, which involves God's presence, and um, the the act of ritual sacrifice in the Old Testament, which is a really important category. So. Um, and then we're going to focus in on Leviticus 1 as a sort of case study in how th- these two things come together. So the, the presence of God in the Old Testament is a topic that has intrigued me for a while, um, in part because God's, God engages with people in so many different ways in the Old Testament, and, and his holy presence is something that becomes very important, in particular in the book of Exodus and um, through the book of Numbers. Deuteronomy doesn't focus on it so much, but in those three books, which are really at the heart of the Pentateuch, and the place where if uh, Jewish kids are studying the Bible, that's where they start. They start with the book of Leviticus. So that's where you, know, you start your kids in, in their training in the, in the Torah, in the Old Testament. And, uh, and so I think um, you know, that shapes Jewish worship, even though Jews, like Christians, no longer practice sacrifice. So it's easy to think, like, when, when we're looking at the Old Testament, that connects somehow more closely with Jewish people, but um, Judaism, as a religion, no longer practices sacrifice unless you're a, a Samaritan um, living in Israel, and they still sacrifice on Passover, but that's about it. So, okay, so let's, um, so those are the three things I want to go through, divine, divine presence, Encounter with the divine presence through ritual. So that's really what's at the heart of ritual, is, it, is how, how do we engage with the holy God who's now camped out among us? Um, because in the book of Leviticus, actually in, in the middle of the book of, of Exodus, we find out that God says, I'm going to come live in your backyard, Israel. Okay, So here's what you have to do to prepare yourselves for that. So that's what all the, all the rituals um, in... The, the Pentateuch in the first five books are really about is setting Israel up to to have to have God in their backyard, um, and we'll see why that was such a dangerous proposition as we get going. Okay, so first thing I want to do is talk a, a little bit about the theological backdrop to Leviticus chapter one, and feel free to jump in with comments or questions along the way because I don't want to just monologue. Um, Okay, so when, when Israel, um, when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, what, what, what does this image um, connote in, uh, for you? So there, he brings them out of Egypt and leads them, what does he lead them with? A pillar of fire. Yeah, it's a pillar of fire, 
um, at night, and then what does it look like by day? Cloud by day. Yeah, so this, this is the, the first, like, physical embodiment of God that Israel encounters. Um, and it's that, that um, physical presence of God that, that will stay with them through the Pentateuch, at least. So for, through um, the description of God's body, if you will, in the, in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Okay? So God brings Israel out of Egypt guides them by this pillar of, of cloud by, by day that provides them with some kind of shelter or protection from the, the pursuing Egyptians. Um, and then at night, it's, it's fire. Okay. Now, the reason that that's important is because it, it really gets at um, a, an important dynamic of God's body as Israel encountered it in the Old Testament. And it sounds a little weird to talk about God's body, um, but I think it's important because um, in, in the, book of, uh, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, God said, I'm going to come dwell among you physically. So I'm going to be physically present with you. And this is the first time that God took up that um, role, really since the Garden of Eden, where, God, where it says that God walked among the first humans, so, you know, we read in Genesis 3 that, that God came to, to um, walk among, Adam, um, in the garden, among uh, the people that were there, Adam and Eve. And it uses a verb, um, a verbal form of a Hebrew word, that also appears in Leviticus when God says, I'm going to walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. So he's evoking that sort of Garden of Eden, physical presence with his people. So, but the problem is there's... There, you know, since Genesis 3, the, um, sin has entered the world. But God still wants to be present with his people. So the question is, how can he be physically present with his people given that sin is in the world? Alright, so that's really what's behind, theologically behind the whole sacrificial system, is how can Israel now engage with God given the problem of sin and death in the world? Okay. Alright, any, any questions or comments so far? All right, all right. So, getting back to this this fiery presence, um, we'll find out from other texts in the Old Testament that that God's body, in a sense, is is like physically luminous. It's it's a brilliant light, um, and it was so powerful that it had to be shielded because for people to encounter God's full glory w- was really dangerous for them. So no one can see God and live. So. So God set barriers around himself for the people so that they could encounter him. So one of the prerequisites for encountering God is for there to be some barrier between humans and God so that the encounter is possible. Okay, so, so we see that so, so this, this pillar of fire um, shows up at night. If you look, you know, if you look into a cloud at, at night, that fire is going to glow through. But then in the daytime, you'll just see the outer cloud of it. So that's kind of the, the image you get. Um, in the book of Exodus. So God's presence goes then and camps out on the top of Mount Sinai. Because God takes his people to this holy mountain, and that's where he gives them the law. And, and then um, it says Moses went up into the mountain, and God's presence was there like a burning fire in the mountain covered in a cloud. So the same, the same kind of physical presence 
then um, meets with Israel on the mountain, and the people have to have to stand back because it's dangerous to come near the mountain. So then we learn something else, which is really important, that that um, God's holy presence is dangerous for the people to encounter. All right, and that has to do with the problems of of sin, but not just sin in a moral sense. There's also this this problem of of ritual sin um, or ritual impurity. So touching the carcass of a, of a um, dead human or a dead animal puts you in a position where you could not encounter God's holy presence. So, so the, the kind of domain of death can't come into contact with the domain of, of holiness or, or life. All right, so, so Israel encounters God at Mount Sinai. And then if you think about the mountain, Mount Sinai, you have God's holy, most intense holy presence at the top and then it says that, so Moses is the only one that could go that far. And then the 70 elders of Israel could go up onto the mountain, but no further. They couldn't go all the way to the top. And then Israel as a whole had to stay, stay um, apart from the mountain. So there's a kind of hierarchy um, at the mountain, a hierarchy of holiness. And then God says on the mountain, I want you to make me a house because I'm going to come live with you. And he says, basically, I want you to flip Mount Sinai on its side and then carry it around with you everywhere you go. So you had the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where God's fiery, glowing presence would dwell. And then you had the, uh, the holy place where priests could go. And then you had the courtyard where a worshiper could enter and then the outer camp of Israel. So you had that sort of um, gradation of holiness uh, that was on Mount Sinai, now flipped on its side and brought everywhere that Israel went. Okay? So that's, God said, I'm going to make you a portable Mount Sinai. So he goes with them, and that's where you're going to encounter me um, in a very intimate and dynamic way. All right, so the first thing then that I want to say about um, what God's presence is like in uh, the Old Testament, and in particular in the book of Leviticus is that it's related to God's holiness, that God is, is holy set apart from the people. Um, he, he, he's uh, distinctly other, and that had to be maintained. But at the same time, the very thing that, gave, that, that distinguished God from the people is the thing that he wanted them to emulate. So he said, I'm holy. In other words, I'm completely set apart from you, but I want you to come be holy. So join in my life. So, it's, so there's, a, there's a kind of push and a pull to holiness in the Old Testament. You can't encounter it, but God wants you to emulate it and draw near to him by becoming holy. So this is the, this is the kind of tension that's set up in the book of Leviticus of being unable to encounter God, but him wanting to encounter you. And so he's, he puts rituals in place so that it can happen. All right? Any... Um, any questions or comments on that so far? All right, I'm going to try to pick up speed so we can get to Leviticus 1. Um, all right. So, so, God's, um, so he's got this luminous body um, where, where he dwells in the Holy of Holies, and that's where his most intense presence is located. But it never says, and I, sh I want to back off my claim um, for a second here, that it's actually God's body, because it never says it's God's body. It just says um, that it's his kavod, or glory. So 
there's a little bit of resistance even in Leviticus to saying God's body is there, but it's the glory that maybe um, emanates from God's most intense presence. All right, so that's in the Holy of Holies. And, and are you all familiar with the... Um, let me just get to a picture. Okay, so this is, the, this is the, a little setup of the tabernacle um, facing east. So here's the tent, the tabernacle. And the most holy place was um, at the far end, the west end of the tabernacle. And it says that God's glory dwelled upon the Ark of the Covenant, which in other texts is called God's footstool. So we're to imagine here um, a throne where God sat and his feet are on that footstool and he's between these two winged cherubim. All right, but you can't really see them in that, well, you can't see them in that picture. Um, but in, in uh, the book of Exodus, it's described. So God is sitting enthroned in the tabernacle and for you to encounter the divine king is, is a dangerous um, proposition. And so it, it only happened once a year. And remember, remember I said it's a very, um, God's presence is very bright. So what the high priest would do is he would come in and he would light this altar of incense here. So this curtain would be open and the smoke from the incense would fill the, um, the Holy of Holies. And so when the high priest went in there, even the high priest was shielded from the full brunt of God's glorious presence. And I think that's the kind of idea behind the, the incense altar being located here. It actually says it's right in front of the curtain. All right? So the, the high priest is protected from that. Okay, so that's the, uh, the luminous um, body of God. It, we also read... Um, I think that's all. I, I'm going to go on to the next point. Um, oh yeah, just a, a quick comment here. When Moses, so before the Israelites went to Mount Sinai, Moses had a little encounter at Mount Sinai with God in the burning bush. Um, and it's interesting because the Hebrew word for bush is sinai, and that's very much like um, Sinai, the Hebrew term for Mount Sinai. So there's a play on the bush and the, the mountain. So Moses goes and he encounters God in a burning bush and it doesn't consume the bush because God's not dependent on creation in any way. Um, and God says, uh, I'm going to bring you back to this mountain um, when you liberate the people from, from Egypt. So that's so really going to Mount Sinai was a fulfillment of that promise to Moses um, back in Exodus 3. Okay, so God, God's body is then shrouded um, by a cloud, but also by, um, you could say that like demarcating um, the, the tabernacle and setting up barriers between him and the people. Because remember, barriers are the necessary precondition for encounter in, in Leviticus. You couldn't encounter God without there being some barriers between you and God. So God, uh, you, you could say he, he, he shrouds himself in order to draw near um, to people. Um, so that's, uh, that's that part of it. Let's get to stoning animals now. Um, so when Israel was at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, God says to them, don't come near the mountain. First of all, you need to be ritually pure. Don't come near the mountain or even touch it. 
because if you touch it or one of your animals touches it, uh, they'll need to be stoned or shot with arrows. Okay, so fair enough. Um, why do you think you would need to be stoned or shot with arrows for that? Why would an animal need to be, first of all? What the animal? Unclean. Unclean? Okay, so like how does that work then? What has the animal done? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we. I guess it tries to know, right? Yeah. So it would. I don't know. I guess it would. Have, I don't know if you could say an animal was being disobedient. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, the animal doesn't. It's not morally culpable, right? What else do you think? And, and this really gets at the heart of like. Um, I guess ritual sin in Leviticus, okay? It's not all um, volitional, willful, in fact, most of it is not volitional, willful kinds of sin that are being dealt with in the books of, book of Leviticus. One of the interesting things about Leviticus is that high-handed or intentional sins really have no ritual um, uh, solution in the book. There's a few texts where it seems like maybe like in, in Leviticus 4, that intentional sins are dealt with. But the book is primarily dealing with unintentional sins, like accidentally stepping on a, uh, an insect that's unclean. And, and the risk was, not simply that that was an unclean act, hey Phil, <laughs> but that the, the risk was that that uncleanness would be transferred into the tabernacle and render the tabernacle impure and therefore God would no longer be able to dwell with his people. Okay? So, um, the animals then, uh, if they came close to the mountain and touched it, the risk is that they come into contact with God's holiness and could bring that out of its uh, set-apart domain because holiness was contagious. Okay? So coming into contact with the holy and then walking out into the community puts the whole community at risk. And so it says they were to be stoned or shot with arrows because you wouldn't want to touch the animal. All right? so because that animal has, is, in a sense, um, radioactive. Okay? So I, I've used the analogy before that uh, if you think about a nuclear power plant, a nuclear power plant, you could say, is good for the community, depending on your environmental view on that. But for the sake of the argument, um, the power plant powers the city, and it provides electricity and all these good things. But just because it's good for the community doesn't mean that you bring that radioactive material into the kindergarten in town and say, look what, you know, look what your community has done for you. That needs to be walled off and kept separate in order to function well for the community. And so that, that's kind of the dynamic of God's holiness in uh, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, um, Numbers, and Ezekiel in particular. All right, so um, holiness is contagious. The priests had to wash their clothes after, uh, they had to change their clothes after performing certain sacrificial rituals so that they didn't bring that out into the community because their clothing became holy by contact with the holy, God's holy presence, Okay. So, are you getting a feel for the 
the holiness of, of God and his um, physical presence. All right. Um, so it required limits and exclusive access, so that's why you had priests, and they, they were really barrier um, or borderline individuals who were able to go between the people and God um, without putting the people at risk, and without putting the tabernacle at risk of contamination so that God couldn't dwell there anymore, right? Um, ineffable, that's the, the sixth point there, um, meaning that God... Um, we see in particular in the book of Ezekiel, and I think I, I like this example because Ezekiel really does verbally what the book of Leviticus does physically. So um, I want to read one text to you, if I can find it real quick. Okay, Ezekiel one twenty six. So here we have the prophet Ezekiel describing a vision of God's holy presence. And uh, Ezekiel says, I saw this, this crazy you know, thrown in the, in the sky. Um, and here's what he says in, in 126. Above the vault over their heads, don't worry about the context, so I'll, uh, I'll get to the main point. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if, of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. What do you notice about the way that Ezekiel talks here? What is he doing? He's making it very clear that those are analogies. The appearance yeah. as if it was kind of like... Yeah. Yeah, so he's... So, in a way, Ezekiel is, is like verbally shielding... or Avoiding making a direct claim about what God looked like. And that's why, in a sense, Leviticus is doing that too. By describing God's glory, but not saying that it's God that is um, seen by the high priest or something like that. So Ezekiel says when he, when, he, when he actually comes to land on the Lord, on the throne, he says, it was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So he's kind of like three steps removed from saying that I saw the Lord. So he's, he's unwilling to say that directly, which I, I think is an interesting. Um, I, I've often thought about that in connection with the way that we speak about um, God acting in the world um, and I I'm in process on this but I, but I do think that there's a, a kind of holiness um, to even the way that we describe uh, God's activity and that we should be reticent to saying directly this is God just like Ezekiel was reticent to say oh I saw God it was pretty cool um, here's what he looked like exactly he says I, I saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God he kind of remains in a, in a reverential stance, even in the way he talks, and then he falls face down, and I think that um, correlates with that. Okay, and then I've described how God is enthroned. I'm going to switch gears now. So we've talked about God's presence. Do you guys have any comments or questions about that? It's a bit of an unusual way of talking about God's, God's presence, but I think it's important to kind of get inside that world a bit. 
Yeah. I was just going to say it just seems yeah. so foreign to the way that often Christians speak of God in such a familiar way. Yeah. We're so removed from this, I think. Yeah. Way of thinking about God. Yeah. I, so, so is God... One of the things I, I, I wonder about after reading this is, this is God's way of encountering us fundamentally different now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or have we lost something you know, in the process of encountering? Like yeah. it, it Be- like because you know, one of the primary ways of talking about encountering God is, is talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's maybe the most um, imminent way that we encounter God. And I think it's easy to forget the holy side of the Spirit. That it's not just the Spirit of God, it's the Holy Spirit. And so then what does that imply or, or say to us in the way that we encounter God? Um, so I hope to get back to that point. But that's good, yeah. I missed the definition of ineffable. Could you just... just like, un, un, um, unable to be spoken or said directly. Okay, so I've talked about God's presence um, among his people. Then the question is, how do you encounter that presence? And that's where we get into the world of ritual. So, um, and where Aaron's going to make all the connections to Anglican, <laughs> Anglican ritual. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I, but I think it's, let's take a moment just to talk about ritual and what it does. Um, so, do you guys want to just... What what is ritual? How how would you how would you define it or describe it? What are some things that come to mind at least? Yeah. A repeat or something. Repeat? Okay. Yeah. They so. Keep doing over and over. Yeah, yeah. That's important. Some kind of routine built in to it. And we could talk about religious ritual too, or any kind of ritual, but yeah. I was going to say, um, like, repeating, but with meaning behind it, not mm. something that's rote, but something that is yeah. purposeful. Right, right. So you've just hit on, like, um, a contested area in ritual studies. <laughs> so so there, there are, like, two, two main schools of thought. One of them is um, that ritual is all... Uh, significant to the participants in the ritual, that it, it has like um, a meaning that they understand and, and, and sort of enter into as they perform the ritual. And then there are other people that say, well, when we study rituals, especially ancient rituals, we don't really know what the participants thought they meant. Um, for some people, it's just important that you do it. And, and you might interview people. So if you interviewed, if I interviewed everyone here about... Um, the significance of, of crossing yourself. Um, uh, I might get a bunch of different answers, but you might all agree that it's important. So it's, a, it's an interesting area um, to, to delve into. But, and, and particularly important in Leviticus because it's so frustrating that Leviticus, Leviticus doesn't say why you should do certain things, which makes it really hard for us as Christians trying to get into this world. Like, well, why is it important that you splash the blood on the altar? What is that doing? What is that saying? And so you get all kinds of interpretations of that, but it's a little hard to be certain. Okay, what else does ritual 
um, bring to mind. You have the word comfort up there, and I think, like, when I think of a religious ritual that's sort of taken out of context is, like, baseball players that might get up and cross themselves several times before yeah. they hit the ball. Yeah, yeah. Like, so it's has some residual, like, yeah. comfort or meaning, yeah. even though it's obviously quite different from yeah. the original. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is superstition, actually. What's it? Borderlines on superstition? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's a common criticism of a lot of rituals is that, um, well, it, it can slip into superstitious engagement with, with God. Or th- This is actually from a Starbucks. Um, a door going into a Starbucks. Take comfort in rituals. So, um, <laughs> It's uh, serving a particular end. Um, <laughs> and it's the Trinitarian smoke coming out of it. Oh, yeah, look at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, let me see if I get to... (laughs) Yeah. So I I wanted to just say like three things that um, I think ritual does, and and we could could probably talk about a lot more. One of the things rituals do is sharpen the distinctions between um, certain transitions or spaces. And what I mean by that, if you think of like a, um, a society that has uh, a spring harvest ritual, okay, where, where you perform some religious ritual to mark the, the beginning of the spring harvest when the plants have, have, have first come in. Now, um, the, physically or you know, environmentally, the, the time when the plants first put up their shoots is not a precise moment. But what rituals do is they mark that as a precise moment in order to say this transition has taken place now. So you're actually sharpening something that's not as sharp in real life. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you might, uh, you, know, you might have a... Uh, I mean, that's what we do at birthdays, right? We, we sharpen this, this transition point in life. Um, some, it might be a coming-of-age birthday where that, it kind of marks a, a, a distinct period in someone's life. When in reality, your maturity is, is, a, is a gradual process and it doesn't have like a moment where you, know, you cross some line. Um, so, so it sharpens the distinction in time, but also in space. So uh, in particular, thinking about the book of Leviticus, one of the issues at play in sacrifice is that you're encountering God in this holy domain. All right? But where does God's holiness begin and end? Right? You can't really mark that off real clearly. And so what rituals do is they, they kind of delineate um, the, the sacred and the secular domains, if you will, um, by putting up barriers and then crossing those barriers at moments and, and kind of sharpening those transitions. Okay? Um, so the second thing is that they establish or reinforce social relationships. So there, there was a... Um, it was important that Israel recognized that these priests were the go-betweens between Israel and God. And rituals reminded the people that the priests served in that capacity, that they stood between God and the people. So rituals actually reinforce social relationships and hierarchies um, in society or in a religious community. Okay? Um, the third thing is that they actually bring something into effect. 
they affect a transition. For instance, um, in Leviticus 1, it's, it's the giving over of an animal to um, God. So, moving something from the physical realm to God's domain, however you want to describe that, it, it, it actually affected that transition to bring something into effect. And, and, I've, and I've thought before, like, it's not quite a ritual, but Abby and I, we have coffee each morning if, like, if our kids sleep in. Uh, we have coffee together. And that kind of sharpens the transition from the, the blurry-eyed, like, pre-dawn period to the beginning of the morning. And, and we're sort of marking the day that it has now begun. Um, and you could say it establishes or reinforces the relationship between the two of us in coming together over that. And it also affects something. It actually, like, wakes us up. So, so those three, three, three things happen with with having coffee together. Um, now, of course, it's different with uh, ritual in Leviticus 1. So here's, here's a clunky, a uh, little bit, a bit of a mouthful definition. But uh, ritual in Leviticus 1 are the routinized, that gets that Phil's comment, the routinized acts corresponding to encounter with uh, the divine presence, the presence of God. So these are the acts that you have to do to maintain God's presence with you, to encounter it, and to restore it if there's been some breach in the relationship. Okay? Any, any comments or questions thus far? All right. All right. Let's, uh, let's read Leviticus 1, 1 to 9. Don't worry if you can't read that, because we could read it from... Actually, I'll grab one of these Bibles and be reading from the same version. Could someone read um, just that whole section for us? Leviticus 1, 1 to 9. Noah? Are you ready? I'll read it. Okay. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, great. Um, makes perfect sense, right? Um, what I want to do is, is just briefly walk through the ritual so you get a sense of it, and then offer a few reflections on it, and then uh, you know get your get your feedback as well as to what you think is happening in this ritual. Okay, so the first thing to notice is is in the first two verses you get a sort of introductory word on the sacrifice itself, and it says the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting um, in the 
in the last chapter of Exodus, just before this, God's fiery presence had, had come and dwelled in the tabernacle that had just been made. So for the first time, God is, is now, has now taken up residence in the tabernacle. And these are his first explicit words to Moses, at least that we get to hear about, um, that he speaks from the tabernacle. And, and he says to them um, in verse 2, uh, Speak to the people whenever, whenever, whenever any one of you brings an offering to the Lord. And, and the, the term there in Hebrew um, is actually to bring near an offering. So that, that dynamic of encounter is at play right from the beginning. So when you're drawing near with an offering, okay, so how do you encounter God? How do you move toward the divine um, without, uh, you know, getting, getting um, ending up like the animal in Exodus 19? Okay, so, you see, so what, what is being described then in verses 3 to 9 is the burnt offering ritual. And this is an offering... Um, it's also called an entirely burnt offering. And the reason it's called that is because it's, it's uh, the offering that's completely consumed on the altar. And the priests and the people do not eat of it. So other offerings are actually shared in the meal with God. In this case, it's entirely consumed. And so it's called an olah offering or an ascending offering. It all ascends up to God. Right, so that's, that's the kind of offering we're talking about. And it starts out in verse 3 with the, um, something from the herd. Um, so it begins with the, uh, the bull. In verse 10, it talks about something from the flock, a sheep or a goat. And then in verse 14, it talks about the birds. All right? I'm not going to go through all those. I'm just going to talk about the, the bull offering. Okay, so here's what happens. He brings, um, so that there's a sense in which that the offer is invited to come near, but Leviticus is saying, or God is saying to Moses to say to the people, when you come before God, don't come empty-handed. It's really important that when you encounter God, you bring an offering with you. All right? So no matter, no matter what your reason for drawing near to God, that's critical. So it starts out with the most costly offering, the bull, which um, in the ancient world had been extremely expensive. Uh, they... They really didn't eat meat very often, um, let alone uh, something from the herd. So this is, this is like giving your BMW. And not only just giving your BMW, but seeing that BMW entirely um, consumed by fire and deriving no personal benefit from that consumption by fire. And the priests don't even derive any benefit from it. Right? So I've heard someone describe... Um, by analogy, they were talking about offering in the Old Testament, and they said, imagine if you took an offering in your church, and everyone gave generously, and then you went up to the front of the church and just lit it on fire. Okay, so that's, that's what's happening here. Not quite, but it's an analogy for what's happening. There's no personal benefit um, to, the, to the worshiper in, in this burnt offering. I think that's important, though. Um, Okay, so they bring something without uh, blemish. It's, it's to be whole and complete. And uh, if we have more time to delve into this, this is another important dynamic in Leviticus, that that which you bring, God, is in a sense a, um, a, a perfect form of creation. So th this is, this is a, um, a representative of God's good creation that you're offering to him in the sacrifice. So here's what, here's what the offerer does then. 
So the offerer who has maybe raised this animal brings this, brings this animal um, to the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it could be accepted before the Lord, so God's presence is in view here. Verse 4, he lays his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted um, to make atonement for him. So why is he laying his hand on the head? Okay, transference of sin, that's one option. What else? Actually, it's, it's literally he's pressing his head, hand on the head. I don't know if that makes a difference, but... Blessing him, the offer? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm just saying that, that was, yeah. that was uh, another word, but I, I thought it was maybe a transfer of his sins over yeah. to the bull and God accepted. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this? It doesn't really say, does it? It just says you're to do it. And this gets at that whole like meaning of ritual. Um, so, and, and this is one of the reasons Leviticus can be so frustrating um, is that it doesn't say this signifies the transference of sin or the blessing, you know, um, that, those are options at, at play, and I think we could sometimes even narrow down the options because it can't just mean anything. But um, he puts his hand on the head. Maybe it's identifying it. Maybe it's just saying, this is my offering. You know, like, you're, I'm, uh, this is the one, God. You know, it's before the Lord. I'm identifying that this is my offering to you. Um, so... But it's, it does say, it shall be accepted for him. So maybe this is a kind of dynamic of um, communication between God. And you know, by putting your hand on the head, then God accepts it. And then we get this phrase, to make atonement for him. And this uh, is a highly debated term in ritual studies of the Old Testament. It's the, the Hebrew term, um, kiper. And uh, it's translated alternatively, make atonement, or... Um, to make expiation for him. Other translations say um, to effect cleansing for him. So you get a, a wide range of, of terms. Atonement t- um, tends to connote uh, a restoration of relationship to make at one with God, you know, to, to, to restore a, a, maybe a relationship that was broken in some way. Um, I think the most basic meaning of the term is to cleanse or decontaminate. Um, and I get, I get that from Leviticus 16, where the, the use of the term there, but that's a real, it's a real debate, so I don't want to be dogmatic about that. So but, yeah. What's that? He said be kind of right. Um, like if you're making a sacrifice yeah. to atone for your sins, mm-hmm. or your relationship, yeah. and then isn't that like the same thing you said, like you're transferring it over yeah. to the animal? Yeah. And therefore, the animal is the sacrifice mm-hmm. for what you basically. Yeah, want. yeah. That's 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 an interpretation that has like um, a pretty wide following. You know, so I think that's it's an option. the The reason it, it might not be what's going on is that the burnt offering ritual is used on a, on such a wide range of occasions. Most of them not dealing with sin, because there are other there are other offerings for dealing with sin. 
And so, uh, for instance, the burnt offering ritual is used to inaugurate, um, um, like, the new temple. Um, it's used at, at celebrations as the first offering sometimes. Israel is, is commanded to do the um, burnt offering ritual twice a day. Um, and, it, and it might just be an invitation offering to God to, like, come meet with us. And that's some... Some people think that the reason it's the first offering is because it's mostly about invitation. So you, you, you offer this, this animal to God, and it says it goes up as a soothing aroma to God. So he's, he's drawn toward the people. So anyway, it's, it's hard to pin down. It's a barbecue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, kind of the image there. What's that? <coughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, when your when your neighbor has a barbecue, you smell that, and like you're drawn toward them, you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, number uh, verse five. Then, so then they offer I mean, kills. I just, I just yeah. Want to ask real quick. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, like going with like killing Larry on this. Yeah. Yeah. In that one sentence, it's saying. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and yeah. it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Yeah, yeah. So if we take that to be atonement, like relationship building or restoring, yeah. or yeah. we take it to being cleansing. Yeah. Like whether it's volitional sin or the cleansing sin, mm-hmm. like isn't it right there making a pretty direct? Yeah. This is what it's for. Yeah. Well, as it, opposed to invitation or other things that. Yeah. It may be used for in other cases. Right, but right. In this particular calling, it's saying this is yeah. the fundamental of what this is about. Yeah, I think, so you're, you're getting at the kind of like um, ritual side of, of uncleanness. So when someone, when someone comes before um, God, they're in a, they, could be in a, they have to be in a state of, of um, ritual purity already. And, and so, when they come to bring the, the sacrifice then, um, it's, it's possible that there, there's a further, like, decontamination process that needs to be undertaken as a, like, completion of that um, purification. And so that's, that's one possibility here. But I, I guess you could put that under the larger umbrella of, of dealing with sin, and then, you know, in that sense, yeah, it would be making atonement, restoring the relationship. But it's just not, I guess because other, other sacrifices are singled out as dealing specifically with sin, that the primary function of this sacrifice doesn't seem to be sin as such, um, but the actual effect of soothing or, or being a pleasing aroma to God. So that's why I... Yeah, so you're just saying it's not necessarily sin or, or even cleansing necessarily, but it's something, even the invitation would be like a restoring of relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of these things are about like maintaining and restoring the relationship, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is affected by sin and death. Mm-hmm. You know, so those things are always in view in all the sacrifices all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, But it's, it's, it's like the, the specific or unique function of this one as opposed to the sin offering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, is it one of the meanings of kapara to cover? So yeah, like yeah, is yeah. Covering? Yeah, that's another one. Yeah. Right. So it's um, 
to cover over sin or, or provide a, yeah, covering, yeah, good. So cover, decontaminate, cleanse, um, make atonement, make expiation, like all these things are possibilities of, of the, the term prepare. Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. I just see, um, with the fitting ahead, with the soothing aroma, yeah. reminds me of, like, in Revelation of the purge of the saints. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Going up as an offering. Yeah, Larry. You were saying when you come, you have to come with purity already, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, like, well, if I'm coming for atonement of sin, I'm not coming with purity, am I? And the priest is the go-between. Yeah, yeah. So it really doesn't matter whether I'm pure or I'm pure. It's, shouldn't it be whether he's pure? Well, it's... If I'm coming to a tongue yeah. sin and I'm bringing an animal, yeah. am I defiling it? No, you're not. Well, okay. So when you come to... Be, yeah, yeah, I know. Because what, what's happening is, it's almost like you have to be at the, in the state where you need to end up in, in order to offer a sacrifice. So you need to be ritually pure in order to make an offering, a sin offering, to be restored to a state of purity. Um, which sound like contradictory things, but those, but those are like the, it's in a sense the, the sort of paradox of offering. Um, I don't want to get off on that too much, but it's a... <laughs> no, no, I'm just, just, just trying to be clear, because I know yeah. that there's like, uh, there's volunteer offering, mm -hmm. and then there's required offering. Yeah. And so you have like a bunch yeah. of volunteer offerings yeah. uh, of this event you have to require it. Yeah. And so I was just thinking of when you said that you have to be uh, pure. And yeah. that if I was going to get an offering for sin, yeah. am I coming as a pure person or a sinful person? Right. Yeah. Well, it's... I mean, we're... I'm not sure I'm, I'm totally getting the question, but I think that the issue, the, the the explicit issue at play here is not sin in this okay. person's in, in, encounter with God. There may be a dealing with sin that needs to, to take place um, as an initial like step in the procedure. Um, but anyway, that's not the the main focus. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me let me get through it, and then we'll we'll we should probably wrap up. Okay. So we. The Aaron's, son, Aaron's sons, then, they take the blood, which is the most precious part of the animal. Um, the life is in the blood, we find out uh, in other texts, uh, in Leviticus as well. The Aaron's sons, they take it and they splash it against the sides of the altar. Um, another question we could delve into is, why is it splashed against the side of the altar? What's the significance of that? Um, again, we don't really know. Some theories are that this is being, the life is being given over to God. Um, and that's why the priests have to handle it and why they put it at the altar, which is the place where the, the, the offering then ascends in smoke to God. Um, blood is also used for cleansing in many rituals, and so maybe it's a cleansing of the altar that's taking place. Okay, so then he lays uh, the burnt offering, cuts it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, they put the fire in the altar, they arrange the wood on the fire, and Aaron's sons, um, they arrange it. And then the, the offerer has to wash the entrails because um, anything that may have had excrement on it, the priest can't touch. The offerer has to clean the animal before it's put on the altar. 
So it needs to be in a state of ritual purity. So the, the, the animal is washed, put on the altar, and then it says, um, the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, um, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So then the offering is turned into smoke. It's literally turned into smoke at this point, and it ascends to God as a soothing aroma to God. So here we have the transfer uh, complete at this point. All right, let me, um, let me wrap up with just a few comments on the nature of, of this passage. So, so one, of the, one of the questions is, how do we think about, um, if I were to walk, walk like have a five-step process for thinking about ritual texts, I think it's important to read it, understand the individual pieces, and in some senses all the, the points that are unclear, and then try to integrate, like imagine the ritual itself, um, and then reflect theologically, and then re- recontextualize. So move it back into our own context. How do we think about it now? Um, here, here are a few things that I want to um, just comment on this passage. First of all, there's an extraordinary invitation here to actually to meet with God. Um, the the remarkable proposition of the book of Leviticus is that God, who is so intensely, uh, dangerously powerful, wants to come meet with sinful people, right? And he's going to actually, he's going to dwell in their backyard, and he says, come be near me, All right? So, but for that to happen, uh, lots of things need to be put in place, lots of rituals need to be put in place so that... Um, my holiness, so that God's holiness doesn't put the people at risk. The second thing um, is that sacrifice is a, a form of gift giving, so it's called a korban in this passage. That's what the, the offering is called. We translate it offering, but it's a, actually a gift. So you're drawing near to God. Yeah. I'm saying that korban. Is that C-O-R-B-A-N? Yeah, in the New Testament that term comes up. So something dedicated to God. Yeah, so... So the offer brings a gift to God, and it's, a, and it's, and it's about divine encounter and, and how you come before God with a gift in hand, all right? Um, and, and I think this builds the relationship between God and Israel um, as they encounter him. The burnt offering ritual was uh, a very important part, uh, not only, as I mentioned, of, of uh, festivals and, and things like that, but also the burnt offering was the one of the most offered gifts um, when someone wanted to say thank you to God. So they would come before him with a thank offering, a burnt offering to him. Uh, or if they wanted to uh, make a vow to God and say, God, if you, let's say, deliver me from my enemy, I will bring you an offering in the, in the taber- at the tabernacle and so it was, or the temple later. So they would bring a burnt offering to God. Um, third of all, it's, also, it's a mysterious encounter. Um, the, the location of God's presence is, is an interesting dynamic in, in, um, in Leviticus. He's in the Holy of Holies, but it says um, at the end of Exodus, his fire came out from the Holy of Holies and consumed the, altar, the offering. But it also says that the smoke ascends to God and is a soothing aroma to him. So God is up, he's in, he's 
before, you know, when they bring the offering to the, the tent of meeting, they're before God. So I think there's a little bit of resistance, like we talked about with Ezekiel, to lo- pinning God down and saying he's right here. Um, they're encountering God who is wholly other. So you can't even talk about him spatially the same way you talk about people. And I, th- and I think that's important as well. Uh, the fourth point is the intention of the offerer never comes into view. It doesn't say, offer this um, if you mean it. You know, or offer it if, uh, if, you, if, you, if it's from your heart. And I think that's an important dynamic in, in any um, religious ritual. And I, I think sometimes we overemphasize the intentionality or the, the, the sort of how we feel at the moment um, part of, of uh, a ritual act. Sometimes it's actually important to go through the motions because maybe the heart will follow from that. Um, or maybe the, the mind will be transformed after the fact. And so, um, saying the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis, or, or you know, praying regularly through the, the feeling, um, these are important practices as a Christian, and I think Leviticus emphasizes the act first. Now, I'm not trying to prioritize act over, over mind or something like that, but I think, I think we can sort of take a point that Leviticus doesn't put in heavy emphasis on that in your encounter with God. Um, and I think sometimes that's an important principle. Um, the fifth thing is that it's costly. Worship was really expensive, especially a thank offering, um, especially the, the burnt offering ritual. Now what's interesting, um, and, and this gets at number seven, it was also a fair system because there's a sliding economic scale. If you couldn't afford a bull, God doesn't say, well, you just can't offer a thank offering. Too bad. You know, this guy can, and I favor him. You could offer something from the herd. And if you couldn't afford that, you could offer a bird. So a bird was valued by God just as much as a bull. Um, so while on the one hand it's costly, it's also a fair economic system that God has, has put in place here. The sixth point, um, and I'll just end on this, is that it's a full-bodied encounter. The, the person who brings a burnt offering, um, they probably raise this animal. They, they put their hand on its head and something happens there. Um, whether it's identification, whether that um, is, is a transfer of sin. Um, he actually slaughters the animal before God, like slaughtering a bull. I've never done it, but I bet it takes a really long time. And it's probably very bloody. <laughs> um, has anyone slaughtered a bull before? You sheep. You, sh- you slaughtered a sheep? You wow. S- I watched it being slaughtered. <laughs> okay. So, so you slaughtered a goat? No, I watched it okay. being slaughtered. Yeah. So it's not like a, you know, a five-minute like affair. Yeah. yeah. So it takes a while. And it's and it's. Um, I remember watching the the Samaritans um, in Israel, like when they had their um, Passover sacrifices, and they were all covered in blood afterward. You know, it's really messy. So, so th- this kind of worship engages the whole body, and even God's God's um, sense of smell is involved somehow. Mysteriously, I don't know exactly w- what all that means. Um, God's physical presence is in view. And, uh, and I think that, you know, 
Aaron, you can you can make the links to uh, Anglican worship. Like we're not we're not just mind, we're not just mind worshipers, right? Like we, it, we we don't just enter into worship and like flip a switch in our minds and and not involve our bodies. Like you do certain things with your hands, you know, in in the rituals of worship, and I think that's that's really important. Um, so these are the um, these are the main theological reflections that I wanted to end on um, and just kind of open up the floor to any, any thoughts about modern worship that come out of this or even divine encounter now. I don't I want to be sensitive to your time because I know I've gone a bit, oh, gone a bit long but um, okay so, so if it, yeah Aaron <laughs> okay now feel free to say Aaron let's talk about this offline yeah I'm totally okay with that um one thing I have wondered, and this is going to, you know, you may be able, and feel free to also say, I already told you there's no meaning in Leviticus. <laughs> but one thing that is really curious to me is that on the Day of Atonement, mm-hmm. when um, the Lord makes instructions for blood to be to be sprinkled all through the tent, like the whole, yeah. isn't, isn't yeah, it, that the yeah. whole tabernacle gets yeah. completely, like, sprinkled with blood, yeah. and that's supposed to cleanse it. Yeah. And what's crazy is that, like, if my house was sprinkled with blood, I wouldn't be yeah. like, oh, man, it's clean. Someone yeah. cleaned yeah. it. Yeah. You know, I'd be like, no, this is the <laughs> essence of contamination, actually. Yeah. yeah. And so what I, one of the things I wondered was, like, is this a visual demonstration of sin? Like, mm. when you see blood splattered everywhere, to me that says it smells, mm-hmm. it's contaminant, it's unholy, it's messy. Yeah. You know, in some ways, for me at least, it's a visualization of what sin does and what mm-hmm. idolatry does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, was um, was God putting that on display, mm-hmm. e- even as He was taking it away? Hmm. It it could be. I I think. Well, for one thing, the sins of the people. Yes. And were really accumulated in the tabernacle. So this is a this is an odd thing. So even if you didn't like physically track something into the tabernacle, the the people's sins had a um, negative effect on the tabernacle, according to Leviticus 16. So there was this process of entropy and death at work in the tabernacle that needed to be dealt with. And I see the bringing of blood into that as as kind of washing it with life. Um, and, and purging it that way. Mm. Now it could be saying what you're saying also in the in the process, but, but I don't know what texts I would point to to, yeah. to get me there. You know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but yeah. I my thoughts were kind of similar. Like it does say, like you mentioned, if you're out in your regular life and you touch a dead body, you're contaminated. Yeah. If you touch excrement, you're contaminated. But yeah. This is happening in the holy place. You're yeah. killing an animal there and you're washing the entrails. Right? The yeah. priests are doing that. Not yeah. just some yeah. farmer guy. Right. But the priest is doing this unholy stuff mm-hmm. but it's holy. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's not unholy to slaughter an animal ritually. Mm-hmm. So, Do you have to be ritually cleansed from it though? Anybody, um, or no? No, is not... It a, body that you just sort of come across that wasn't slaughtered? No, because it's, it's not considered a carcass that has been in the process of decomposition. And oh, I think it's I think okay. it's that decomposition... So fresh body's yeah. not a problem. <laughs> not a problem. Yeah. 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 
And that's, that's the thing, like, it's not, it's not all, like, um, and, and this gets at the blood thing, too, like, it's not all scientifically, um, like, you can't just map it onto, like, a physical sense of cleanliness, like we would understand it now. And I'm not sure they even understood it that way. You know, like, if they had blood on something, they probably wouldn't say, oh, that's good and clean now, you know. But in a ritual world, it is. So the ritual world actually operates differently than our normal world. And that's part of the dynamic of rituals that you're entering another world. And, like, you, ritual enables you to do that. So I don't know if that gets at it. So how does the how does the rinsing of the entrails like what is that? Well, it, it's I guess it's because um, it's it also says the hind legs too, because uh-huh. if it would have had contact with excrement, uh-huh. then the 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 offerer had to wash that off before the priests take it and put it on the altar. Oh, I thought it said the yeah. the priests were doing that. Yeah, it's it's tricky because it says he they he. Okay. You know so. That actually helps. Yeah, and if it says the sons of Aaron, I think that's its way of returning back to the actors, the priestly actors. Uh-huh. And when it says he, it's a way of speaking about the offerer. Oh, so the person who's bringing the offering is like an average guy. Yep, and he actually slaughters it. And he rinses it. Yeah, and, and he, he rinses, rinses the, the entrails. The, and um, I think the priests flay it and put it on the, the altar. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, that, that's Who cleans the holy place when they spread all the blood? <laughs> <laughs> Do they clean that? It's clean then. The it is clean then. They leave the With blood. The blood? Um, so you just leave it there? Doesn't uh, say. No. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing I, I noticed is, uh, as you were talking, is like, and here it says he, so it seemed like it was individuals, it wasn't corporate. Yeah, yeah. And there are corporate burnt offerings. Um, but here we're talking about the practice of blood offering by a ritual, by an individual. So there was corporate burnt offerings. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And did this happen every day then, or? Well, I think what's being described here is a spontaneous offering of an individual. But yes, it op- it happened twice a day, um, in, in the morning and at night. But so multiple people would bring. That was by like the herds, probably owned by the priests. I looked it up and, yeah. and did some studying, and from what I found was they were saying that it was five levels. Like there's all these other uh, burnt offerings and sacrifices. Mm-hmm. A lot of the five, there was general offerings where it was voluntary. You mm-hmm. come in and mm-hmm. make an offering, yeah. a burnt offering to, to God. Yeah. Or then there was uh, a peace offering mm-hmm. that you can make to God. Yeah, that one's described, that's a separate, you mean like five kinds of burnt offering or five? Five types of offering. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then there's a sin offering, then there's the guilt offering, which is uh, required, they're mandatory. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, certain times and certain days like celebrations that you're supposed to uh, have burnt offerings that's required. Yeah. Burnt offerings for celebration and not just necessarily sin. Yeah. So. Yeah, good. But I couldn't find though. I, I was trying to look for like mm-hmm. corporate worshiping because everything I found yeah. was about individual worshiping. Okay. And that, you know, uh, I even found.
found one passage, and so I like what you said earlier, like if you talk to a bunch of different people from a bunch of different churches, you'll get a bunch of different answers, mm -hmm. and that's very true, because I read one passage that says, even if you're, uh, and I thought, like, I need to find who this guy is, because he sounds kind of crazy, because he didn't believe in corporate worship. He said, there's no such thing. And he's saying, like, when we go into the church or whatever you want to call it, uh, that we are going in as individuals and we are focusing on worshiping just God. And, like, you can't really fully worship God together corporately. But I thought that was kind of what Chris was. Yeah, was yeah. Yeah, I mean, just the previous chapter in Exodus, it's, it's like describing a corporate worship experience. And God says to Israel, like when they're in Egypt, basically the whole reason I'm bringing you out is so that you as a people can worship me. And that's the way he was reforming his people after the deforming effects of Egypt, I think. So it's, I think corporate worship is really at the heart of worship um, in Exodus Leviticus. But, yeah, what's <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I know. So I'm in agreement with you on that. <laughs> but um, one of the questions that just um, I think the discussion of divine presence brings to mind is the degree to which, and raised earlier, our encounters with God um, reflect this like sense of God's um, holy otherness. Uh, does God relate to us differently now because of Jesus? Or when we encounter God, are we still encountering the God of Leviticus? I would say we still encounter the God of Leviticus through Jesus. Okay. Right, because we don't have to sacrifice like animals So does that then does that shift then in the way we encounter God um, affect or not affect but mean that we're encountering God in a different capacity like not I don't know you might say in His full power. <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna say this correctly. So you just tell me to be quiet and I will. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's more like there's still a ritual kind of thing to it. Like in accepting Jesus, mm -hmm. like uh, I felt like I said, you know, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I don't act on it. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. in not acting on what I said, I'm really not accepting it. Mm -hmm. But I'm acting on, you know, I'm saying it, but I'm not, I'm not really being obedient to what He's asking me to do because He has, uh, He has some. Uh, requirements for me in order to be a follower of Christ. And I don't follow those requirements exactly. And about two years ago, I, I really came out of the narrow on that. Mm -hmm. You know, like it was just, he's like, I'm a Christian, yeah, I got baptized. Mm -hmm. You know, but I'm not uh, being obedient uh, to the letter that he's asking me to be obedient. I'm mm -hmm. getting more devious and resentful. Mm -hmm. And then just wanted God to fill my pockets on Christmas every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes I'm still that way. Yeah. Did you have a comment? Yeah, I was just. I think. Um, I I think that was one of the questions that kept coming back um, as throughout um, the conversation is because with the incarnation and and. 
after Christ becoming the church, yeah. I don't think it's, I think we're nervous to say that we interact with God differently because we, want, we don't want to invalidate or um, raise ourselves to a superior level. Um, but we can't deny that we're united with Christ and that the Holy Spirit has come in a different manner than he was, you know, that he presented himself to the Jewish people um, of indwelling and staying. Um, so I feel like it, you have to say that it's different, but I would, I think we also have to be cautious of saying it's, that that invalidates the way that God manifested himself very really and very, like, um, powerfully and genuinely in the Old Testament with the Jewish people and But yeah, I've, I've, I've wondered how do we how do we view the way that God manifested Himself to His people before Christ, um, and and how does the incarnation because it certainly changes things, but whether it's and it and then it, the question becomes what do you mean when you say it's better now, or because that can get tricky. Yeah. So yeah. I I. Yeah. I'm wondering that what you your thoughts on that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm gonna get a few more thoughts on it, and we'll kind of try to circle around to that. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, the veil in the temple was torn mm -hmm. when Jesus was crucified. We mm -hmm. approach through the blood of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Our sacrifice once and for yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. Continually go through this, but at mm -hmm. the same time, God is the same as Yeah. Still is as holy. And I think it's important to, to learn these things to remind us of the holiness of God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it really gets at like, our relationship to, if you want to say, the God of the Old Testament. Because um, one, way of, one popular way of reading the New Testament is that God delivered us from the God of the Old Testament, which is sort of an odd way of looking at things. Um, but <laughs> what's that? Marcy. 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 Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so the early church rejected that view. Um, and but at the same time, like how do we how do we think about like the dynamics of divine encounter now um, that Christ has come and the Holy Spirit dwells within us? Can you think of places in the old in the New Testament that parallel what we see in the in the the kind of powerful divine encounters in the Old Testament. That's what I was thinking about in Revelation, and then also um, when Paul talks about, you know, someone entering into the seventh heaven or something, mm -hmm. maybe referencing himself, which is like, yeah. both of those definitely kind of continue to convey um, a very similarly imaged Yeah. Um, God who is incredibly brilliant and luminous and uh, who ultimately will even serve as a replacement for the sun. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. it's still there mm -hmm. fully. Well, even Paul's conversion, he had to mm -hmm. be blinded because yeah. he, so an, an example of the barrier needing to be there to encounter God. Yeah. 
But oh, then yeah. it's also Paul who writes that we have a familiarity with God, as in like family, to mm-hmm. the way we can say Abba Father. Right. So there is yeah. that yeah. informal yeah. that hasn't been there, but there's it's yeah. like a, it's like most it's like is it this or this? And yeah. The answer is just yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if you think about the tabernacle, like Israel lived in tents. And they had lamps in their tents, and they had tables in them where they would have put bread out on them, and they would have a basin where they wash their hands and a cook stove, you know. And so God comes, and He's familiar in the way He relates with them. He's got a cook stove too, and a basin for washing, and a lamp in His house, and you know. So, so God is is if if God came down and and um, in the same, you know, if the story was shifted to our period, it'd probably look a lot different now. Um, but he relates to them in a way that they understand and connect with, and he lives right among them. So there's that familiarity, but then that holy otherness is maintained at the same time. Um, the other New Testament story I thought it was Ananias and Sapphira in Acts five, where they um, lie to the Holy Spirit, and they. Um, you know, they, they dropped dead, you know. Um, so, and that's right after the outpouring of the Spirit in the book of Acts. And, and there's a sense in which Acts is communicating that, that there is this, like, permanent indwelling of the Spirit because Christ poured out the Spirit on the church there. Um, but that doesn't mean that that encounter with God is any less volatile. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's still radioactive. Um, the, another text I think is interesting to look at is in Hebrews um, if you look at Hebrews chapter 12 which actually qu- quotes from Exodus 19 the stoning of the animals text okay so he's talking he, the writer of Hebrews is talking about our encounter with God now that Jesus has come and he refers to the Mount Sinai experience. And if you saw radical discontinuity with that, you would think that the writer of Hebrews would say, well, I'll, I'll read through. Okay. For you have not come to what may be touched. Sorry, verse 18. 12, 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, the blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given Quote, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels and festival gathering. And you would think, if you saw this continuity, that the writer would go on to say, so walk right up the mountain, you know, and, and you know, encounter God in a more familiar way. But he says, um, da, 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 um, Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, speaking about Jesus. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he is promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. So he actually intensifies the experience. So you've come to Mount Zion, it's like 
Sinai 2.0 upgrade. You know, it's 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 way more powerful and and dangerous. If they were warned, how much more are we? So so this is like what gets me. You know, thinking about the okay, what does this mean now to encounter a God that is um, holy, other that is powerful, that is um, but yet is drawing near to us. So that's kind of the piece I want I want to. Leave you, um, leave you with kind of uh, ponder. Maybe we can even discuss more. I don't want to take. You What's that? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll close in prayer, and then I just want to say one thing real quick. So God, we we look at this passage passage in Leviticus, and just are reminded that even to say thank you to you. Um, is a costly endeavor because it costs Jesus everything. And um, if we are found in Christ, it costs us too. And we, um, we just want to recognize that we come to you, Lord, not as someone who cannot be encountered or that we need to um, run away from out of fear, but we do need to approach you with, with awe and reverence. And so we... Uh, just want to maybe reconnect with that side of um, our experience with you, our encounter with the Holy Spirit. I pray that you instill in us each a sense of, of just wonder at your glory and power, um, and that we'd be drawn toward you, because you, you don't use your power to, to distance yourself. We actually use it to, to, to draw near to us. And we thank you for that. And thank you for this group here tonight. And we ask your blessing upon them. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Abby reminded me that uh, the, the school I teach at in England, we just designed a, uh, a free 10-week online theology course. If any of you want information about that, let me know. Um, I can email the so, link to yeah. So yeah, I have a um, I have a a business card with the info on it. Yeah, I could just leave it up, leave a few up here if you just want to see that. So it's it's a free. Um, What's the name of the class? It's called Living the Christian Story. Mm-hmm. So. Do you teach that one, Matt? Yeah, I have um, two and a half of the ten weeks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, thanks for your time tonight your students usually clap for you in Germany has anyone been to Germany in the in an academic context yeah Krista you probably know this like that's what they do they all they all nod on, on, yeah so that's the way so at my first gathering I, I started clapping and then everyone was going